listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. You can turn to the book of John, uh, the first chapter of John. I'm going to read quite a few verses here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. So if you have a Bible, turn to that passage in your own Bible. We have Bibles on the tables. You could turn to the Bible. You could turn to the passage in that Bible if you want. But the, the idea is to get you looking into your own text and, and have it there with you, whether it is, it is on your smartphone or an actual book uh, Bible. But turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to put it on the screen, so you've you got to turn there. Some of you are probably very familiar with this passage. It's a very famous passage. And it begins like this. It's going to talk about the Word. And oftentimes we refer to the Bible as the Word. But in this passage, the Word becomes flesh. He makes himself um, flesh. And of course, the Word is who? Jesus, yeah. And so, um, so Jesus is the word of God in this passage. And so let's read it. Let's consider it. And um, it goes like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6 says, there was a man um, who was sent from God. His name was John. He ends up being John the Baptist, by the way. Verse 7 says, he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. Verse 9 says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who do receive him, um, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the word that we worship. We worship Jesus Christ, the Son who came in the flesh to show us who he is, who God is. And so let's pray to him today. Jesus, we do come before you and and we praise you. We love you. God, as we study the Bible and what the Bible is, what the Bible says and means, um, God, would you be with us here today? Would you um, set aside the confusing things that, that we have? Would you, God, allow us to explain and to, to probe into the, the Bible, the, 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 your word, in such a way that it makes sense to us and comes alive to us? God, we worship you and we praise you this morning. And everybody screamed! Amen. Um, pretty good. So, uh, we're talking about the Bible today, and um, I had some crazy days in college. Um, and sometimes if, if someone says they, they had crazy days in college, what that means is they, they, they went crazy with like sin or alcohol or something like that. But when I say I had crazy days in college, I mean like I literally went crazy in college. Um, maybe not like insane, insane, but um, I just did weird things. Like looking back, like I did lots of weird things in college. I did kind of like intense things. I got really into like hobbies um, and would get like all in and, and go crazy with these hobbies. Like some people like really get into rock climbing or mountain climbing. And you're like, dude, that's crazy. You're just so into that. And it's 
weird and it's dangerous, but whatever. And so I got into weird little hobbies, uh, some of them like that. But at one point, um, it was my summer between my sophomore year and my junior year. I, I was just like, man, I don't really have anything to do this summer. I didn't have a job. I wasn't, uh, wasn't in school. Um, and so I thought, man, I want to read the Bible. And I don't just want to read the Bible, but I want to read the entire Bible. And I don't just want to read the entire Bible like um, in a year. That's what a lot of people do, which, by the way, is a huge challenge. Um, it takes a lot of commitment and dedication every single day to read two or three chapters every day to finish the Bible in 365 days. But, and so I, was, um, I, so I was like, I want to read the Bible. I want to read the entire Bible. And I, want to re- and I got this crazy idea in my head. I was like, I want to read the Bible in 40 days and 40 nights. How sweet would that be? Um, and so I was like, okay, I have this whole summer. I'm not working. I'm not, uh, I don't have a job. I don't have school. And so I'm just going to read the Bible um, every day until I finish it. And hopefully I could read it within 40 days and 40 nights. Because I thought that was really cool because this is like a biblical number, right? And so I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. And so I, I began to realize how big this book is. Um, and, and reading it in 40 days and 40 nights is a little silly. But, and so I um, kind of was like, man, I got to do this. And I told a bunch of friends I was going to do it. So I was like, my, my name was on the line. It was like, man, Joe said he's going to do it. Is he really going to do it? Is he really going to read the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation in 40 days? And so I, I heard about Leonardo da Vinci. Do you, have you heard of him? He's, you know, a pretty big deal in history. But supposedly he did a lot of things that other people never did, invented things and art and etc. And how he did it is he has spent um, more time doing it than other people. And so what he would do, at least as legend or tradition or his journals have it, is that he would have this Leonardo da Vinci sleep cycle. Has anybody ever heard of this? It's pretty weird and crazy. I don't recommend it. Um, but he would sleep, so every four hours he would sleep 30 minutes. Like in a, so in a 24-hour day, if you do the math, you're only sleeping uh, three hours, right? In a 20, so it's like instead of eight hours of sleep a night, you're getting three. And you just prolong that for like weeks at a time. And, um, and so I, I was like, man, I've got to finish the Bible. I, so I started doing this. It's like, talk about crazy, right? This is, everyone, this is crazy. This isn't normal. So anyways, um, so I read, so the first night, I just remember sleep, waiting four hours and then sleeping 30 minutes. I got up and I was like feeling great because I was like, no need to sleep yet. You know, I haven't been sleep deprived yet. And so I remember sitting down and reading all of Genesis in one night and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then the morning came around and the sun was up and I remember feeling like, oh, I could do this. It's good. And then the next night came around and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go to sleep. Um, and so I only had three hours of sleep the night before. Uh, and so I went to sleep. Every, and so I carried on this cycle of sleeping every four hours, every for 30 minutes every four hours, for like three weeks, two and a half weeks. It was pretty ridiculous. I was just walking around like a zombie reading the Bible. But I was able to finish like the whole Pentateuch in a couple days. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and I, I kind of broke the, the sleep cycle thing because uh, I think I probably would have died. Um, but anyways, I did. I ended up in this 40 days, in this summer. I didn't watch TV. I didn't really have a job. I didn't go to school. I didn't really do anything other than read the Bible. I had a Bible that fit in my pocket, and I was walked around reading it, like weirdly 24 hours a day, at least at first, in this sleep cycle thing. And I finished it in, in 40 days and 40 nights. And looking back on that, I think that's very strange that I did that and weird. But um, it's one of those things that I 
I did back then, and I kind of look at that now, and it's like, yeah, it was weird, but I'm glad I did it. It was a good experience to read the entire Bible in such a short amount of time. And so that was the first time I ever read the whole Bible, and I just remember all the stories falling into place. Like, oh, of course Abraham is before David, and David is before Isaiah. And like all the stories, like the continuous story that's in the Bible made sense to me, and all the characters, their, their order made sense to me um, for, for one of the first times. Because I had been a Christian for several years. I had read pieces of the Bible, whole books of the Bible, but never the entire Bible. And I just remember this feeling of like, wow, I really got into it. I really got into the Bible. And, and, and so I tell you that story because in the same way, I think that I experienced this thing um, by reading the whole Bible in a very short period. I also want to encourage you all to, to read the Bible, not to be weird and try to do it in 40 days unless you have a, a long time off from life. And anyways, don't do that. Actually, I don't recommend doing that um, unless you just want the challenge for fun. But um, I do recommend this analogy that I thought of was, was taking the Bible off the top shelf and reading it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we put the Bible on the top shelf because we believe in it and we, we revere the Bible. And it should be on the top shelf, figuratively, that we should um, put it on the top shelf as our best, our, our best book, our, um, the book that represents God and how, how truth comes to us. But if we just leave it on the top shelf, if we just look at it and be like, yeah, I, leave, I, I believe in that book. Yeah, I, I live by that book. But we never take it down and we never read it. We never devour it. We never sit down and read it for long periods of time or read it daily. Then it's just like this book that sits up there and on this top shelf and maybe we come to it with various myths and we think about it in ways that maybe we shouldn't think about it. We just think, oh, we think highly of it, but we just don't, we don't pull it down and we don't read it. And so what I encourage you to do with this month and kind of what I hope, hopefully am um, um, I'm doing with this month that we've called Bible Myth Busting because we take uh, books or we take topics by month is to break down the Bible in such, not break down, but to open the Bible up, take it off that top shelf and look at it and read it and explain confusing, hard, misunderstood passages or ideas that are in Scripture. So that's kind of the big idea behind this month. So um, with that, let's do some announcements. Do you want to hear some announcements real quick? You're like, yeah, okay. Um, there's a pretty big one because there won't be Mill Sunday School next week. Everybody say, wait, no Sunday School next week? Why won't there be Sunday School? Fall retreat, who's going? Yes, and so it looks like at least half of you, the other half of you, you need to go talk to somebody that just raised their hand, ask them about how awesome it is because it's basically the Mill um, us, we go up into the mountains. We have several mill services. If you've never been to the mill on a Friday night, if you're new, that's kind of our main service. And um, you could expect worship and, and sermons, um, a couple of them, a Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday uh, Sunday morning, and you'd expect lots of free time, lots of activities, lots of time interactions with other people, especially if you're new. You know, sometimes people that are new coming to the mill, they're like, oh, I don't want to come to the mill fire retreat because I'm new. But if, if you know this is kind of the community you want to plug into, and by the way, this is a great community to plug into, the mill fire retreat would be the best thing you could possibly do to launch you figuratively into those relationships and community. So um, mill fire retreat is pretty awesome. Right? Right. Um, and so uh, you should go 
Talk to some people as you leave at the back table. They'll hand you a flyer. It is next week. We leave on Friday. So if you've been considering it, just go. Like, and by the way, I think I announced this on the video on Friday night, but um, we have payment plan options. If you're like, man, I can't round up 100 and I think it's $139, $159 right now before next Friday. If that's the case and you really want to go, don't let money be the only stopping you factor. Um, we, we could do payment plans and so you could pay after the retreat is over, etc. cetera. So um, that's your announcement. No, no Sunday school, no mill next week because we will be at fall retreat. And if you are new, um, introduce yourself. I think there should be uh, cards on your, I think some of the tables have first timer cards. You could fill that out. If you don't have one on your particular table, then you can go meet the people in the lobby. Um, they'll be there when Sunday school ends. They'll give you a gift, a CD, a worship CD of songs we recorded at the mill um, a, a long time ago as a gift for saying thanks for coming. So um, are you ready for a discussion question? Yes. Some of you really like this. Some of you, it's, it's like, eh, I don't really want to talk to these people at my table. Um, but it's, it's a really good thing to do. So I would encourage you to, if you're at a smaller table, just to invite yourself into a bigger table so you could hear more ideas um, about this discussion question. And the question, I'm going to just kind of preface it. It's not a very good question. Um, but, but it's because you want to answer, I'm going to ask you to answer it with a yes or a no. And it's a very hard question to just answer with a yes or a no, but it's a very good discussion question in that way because you almost have to say, answer it with a yes and then explain, or a no and then explain. And so here's what I want you to answer, and I'm actually going to assign you, make you pick a yes or a no, as you'll see in a second. But here's the discussion question. Is the Bible 100% true? Um, and so I, I realize that I probably need to explain the question a little bit better, but I'm not going to because I want you to take the question how you want to take the question and then to answer it either yes or no and, and explain. So, so this question ha- has to involve explanation um, as yes or no. So if you want, you could switch sides if you really want to, but I imagine you can just go along with this thing. So if you're on the right side of the room, this is you, then you have to answer it as a yes and explain why you think the Bible is 100% true. If you're on the left, then you have to say, no, it's not 100% true because here's why. Here's how I understand what that question is asking. So if you really want to, you could switch sides. Um, and, and so answer the question, um, yes or no, and then explain. And then what we'll do is we'll kind of discuss kind of debate. I don't even like the word debate. We'll just kind of talk um, after you discuss. Cool? Ready to say? Discuss. All right. I think what, I, what would be cool that would have, if we did right now would be sort of a discussion. And I hate the word debate because that just assumes that there's winners and losers and you're supposed to like attack each other. But seeing as though I just assigned you which position you're supposed to be, hopefully this doesn't turn into WrestleMania in here. <laughs> but uh, let's hear from the right side of the room uh, first. And so someone just kind of, you could stay seated or stand up, just kind of shout out uh, why you think the Bible is 100% true or what you talked about at your table. Anybody? Bueller. Yes, thank you. So Christ is the word. We also call the Bible the word, so it's 100% True. 
Okay, yeah, so the word is we walk in the truth, we walk in light when we're walking in the word. The Bible we refer to as the word, so it's got to be true. Okay, this side, the Bible, yes, thank you. Here we go, WrestleMania. (laughs) So I know he's a Karis Bible student, so he's going to college. So he seems like he has some answers here. So I'll kind of uh, restate what he said. And so he said, the Bible is 100% inspired, but sometimes maybe the Bible records things that uh, differ or maybe are not 100% true because maybe like a bad person saying it. And so it's like, wait, wait, is this still true? Uh, it's still inspired. So he makes the division of inspiration and truth, maybe. So going back over here, anybody else besides John want to say something? And then I'll let John, but I don't want to turn into WrestleMania. Anybody? Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's good. I'm going to repeat what you said because we don't, we don't have the mic. So he said, it's not like the Bible is like a manual on how to build a TV cabinet. So let's not get nitpicky and let's just say the Bible is true because it teaches us who God is, that Jesus came. Uh, the big things of Scripture are true. And so let's, let's not read the Bible as if it's a manual on how to build a TV cabinet. Let's read it for what it is. And so we would say it's true. So this side, anybody? Yes, Michelle. Yeah, I think I know where you're going with this. Um, so there's different accounts, different Bible writers accounting of the same thing. Sometimes they say different things. So potentially, it's, it's not all the way it exactly happened. Is that what you're going to say? Arguments over small details, not over big things. Yeah. So a similar, maybe a similar argument that it's not, it doesn't have to be, all the details don't have to line up. The big picture does. Yes, Sarah. <laughs> Wait, what? Your, yeah, so your side was the Bible is all true. So yeah, so it's once again, so this big idea, yeah, girl, get it. Um, um, I think we'll take two more people from each side, Helen and then Aaron. But what Sarah said, if you couldn't hear, is it's the principle that matters, potentially not these tiny little details. And if we look at the details, they actually line up for the most part, but it's the principles that will always line up. So it's still true, like 100%. So Higgins. Yeah, the left side's the no side. Oh, the middle ground guy. <laughs> Don't boo him. He's just, let him say it. Gosh. So there's potentially stories that bad people say lies, so those lies wouldn't be true, but the story is true. So it's like, what percent is that? I don't know. And then he adds, what is truth anyway? (laughs) Okay, now you could boo him. (laughs) Just kidding. No booing. Helen. Okay, Helen's saying if if the details don't line up in Scripture, then potentially someone that doesn't believe in the Bible will say, wait, these details aren't lining up, so therefore, how can the whole story line up? And if the whole story lines up, then how can the principles line up? And so if you could find in the Bible where details don't line up, then potentially there's a good argument or an argument from an atheistic standpoint of someone that doesn't believe in the Bible that the Bible is not worth what it says it is because the details don't line up. So it has to be all true or else um, none of it's true. It's kind of 
I, I get my interpretation of what she said. I think I expounded upon it a little bit. But if I was on the right side of the room, I would make an argument for, and, and some of you did this, I would say something along the lines of, yeah, the Bible's 100% true, because if someone asks you that question, if someone walks up to you and says, hey, do you believe the Bible's 100% true? Really what they're asking you, and I think some of you got to the heart of what I would say, is they're asking you, do you believe in that whole God? Do you believe in the whole Jesus thing, that he was God? Do you believe that Jesus resurrected? Th- that's what they're really getting to ask you about. They're, they're asking you, do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe it's really true? And I would say, yes, we believe as Christians the Bible's infallible and inerrant. We, we've talk, been talking about this all this month, that we believe in those terms. However, we have to define them and, and say what they, those terms aren't. And so if, if I was on the left side of the room and I had to answer no to this question, I would kind of go to, in the direction that um, I think Aaron Higgins made um, point of this one and this, like this passage in Genesis 3 where in the underlying passage, the serpent, the snake says, you will not surely die which is a lie. God just said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. And the snake comes to Adam and Eve and says, no, you won't certainly die. And so I I realize this is kind of a a hokey or silly example. Um, But if you're reading like verse by verse, like daily doing Bible studies and randomly picking verses, and let's say tomorrow you randomly pick a Bible verse because you believe the Bible is 100% true, and you read Genesis 3, 4, and you just read, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, and you kind of read the context and be like, oh, so this must be a true statement. No, this isn't a true statement, because guess who's saying it? The serpent, the snake, the liar is the one saying this. So the Bible includes lies, and then you might say, well, the Bible's still true because it recorded that story, and the the story's true. But then some Christians would argue maybe this story is a parable, like uh, Jesus tells parables in the Gospels. Are the parables still true? Yes, they're still true, even though they, they may be literal. They're, they're not literal, the, Jesus, the parables that Jesus tells. And so how, if it's not literal, is it not 100% true? And so anyways, um, I gave you a very bad question. I realized that the question was just bad and because it requires discussion and thinking about it and how technical you want to get. Is the Bible like reading a manual? No, it's not. And so what is the Bible? And so all this month we've been talking about these four things, or at least I told you we're going to talk about these four. Last week we talked about translational and scribal confusion, these confusing passages that we need to explain. And because they need explanation, it's kind of like myths build up about these things. And so that's why we've called this month Bible myth busting. And so last week we talked about translational or scribal kind of confusion. Today we're going to talk about these two things, scientific um, confusion, like people try to bring science and the Bible together. And then finally, hopefully we'll get to talk about, um, if we have time, self-contradictions in the Bible. And I'll get to what that means in just a second. But first, science. How many like science? Anybody science fan? Like Bill Nye, the science guy, and um, science class in high school. Um, As some of you know, I was a big fan of science in college. My major was biology with an emphasis in botany. Anybody know what botany means? Yeah, study of plants. And so that, I mean, I was kind of like in college, in high school, I loved my biology, my science classes, majored in science, biology. And so I love science. I'm a fan of science. Um, let's get into the definition of science. You'll see where this is going because basically we're going into this question of how, how do the Bible and science um, interlap? You know, can you, can you, is the Bible scientific? Is, is 
is science? Can we, can we look into the Bible and see science? How does that all work? Well, first let's define science, and I'll put up a little uh, clip art chart, because I know you like clip arts. Uh, clip art chart, I think I got this from a kid's website, but um, basically science, by definition, I'm not giving you a, like a definition to write out, but I'm more talking about the method. Any definition of science has to include the scientific method, which begins, should begin with, on the left, observation. You observe the world around you. You make a theory or a hypothesis about the observations you made. You make a prediction about what happens or how this works. Then you have to experiment. You have to, you know, have your, your control group and your, your, your variable group. And you make an experiment to test what your observation Led, led you to your theory. So you predict, you experiment, and then you have to keep going in science. The scientific method doesn't stop when you're like, I got a theory. No, you keep predicting, you keep um, experimenting, you keep observing that theory on and on and on. You do not just stop and say, I figured it all out. Science doesn't allow you to do that. Sci- the definition of science is using the method and continuing and, and keeping, uh, keep learning, keep progressing um, with theories and new predictions and better experiments to even prove even further the things that you have observed and the way in which you've observed them. So science has to go along with the, uh, scientific, the, the scientific method. And so there's some things that you just can't test. If you take this method seriously of actually doing experiments and actually observing and predicting and having theories and then redoing other experiments, there's some things we just can't experiment on. For instance, we can't scientifically test God, can we? No, it's just kind of like a duh. We can't perform an experiment and then make God, you know, in this laboratory do it the way he did it so that you can make more observations. No, it's just like we, we as, as Christians can't scientifically prove God if we are true to what science is. And lots of people use science when they're just referring to technology or space travel or technology or whatever. So we just throw around this term science. But if we're true to the definition of science, of actually using the method, there's things we just cannot scientifically test, like the existence of God or even things that happened in the past. Like if a miracle happens in the past, well, by definition, we can't scientifically test that because well, the miracles don't happen. You know, miracles are like a one-time event that we then talk about. We can't go back in time and experiment on that miracle. No. I mean, I think we can use historical uh, evidences and historical accounts of miracles and, and say whether or not this miracle happened or it's worthy of being retold. But we can't scientifically, you know, do an experiment on a miracle that happened or really anything in the past that can happen unless it happens again and we get to, you know, have set up a control and a variable and test it. And so it's just like, yeah, yeah, the Bible and science, it's silly, I think, I'm going to get to this idea that it's to throw it on top of the Bible and say, look, we could scientifically do this or that to prove the Bible or to disprove the Bible. It's like, no, we could study it historically and we can get accounts of it and and prove or disprove the statements in it and philosophize about God and his existence, but we can't scientifically test it if we're true to the definition of science. And I think some people... The, the atheistic worldview tries to throw science on the Bible or upon the existence of God and say, you know, because we can't prove 
scientifically that God exists, since we can't do experiments on him, then we have to say that he doesn't exist. And for that, I just think that's a silly way of going about science. There's lots of analogies that sometimes atheists will, will give to us and kind of make our faith look ridiculous. Maybe you've heard of Bertrand Russell's teapot or the flying spaghetti monster. Anybody heard of the, these analogies? Some, I see some hands. Or Carl Sagan's fire-breathing dragon. Look at that cool picture. And so basically these analogies are kind of made to make us as Christians look silly and in for believing in something that we can't scientifically prove. And so Carl Sagan's book, uh, he wrote a book called Demon Haunted World, uh, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And he gives this analogy of, uh, let's say, a group of people believe that they have a fire-breathing dragon living down the road in somebody's garage. And so you hear about this and you're like, Dude, I want to go see. So you go to the garage, you hit open, the garage door opens, you're like, uh, where's the, where's the dragon? I don't see a fire-breathing dragon. And everybody's like, well, he's invisible. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, can we throw powder down, like flour down on the ground so when he makes footprints, we could see his footprints. And the people are like, no, he actually flies. And you're like, well, can we, you know, I have, you know, my grandpa's got some thermal imaging devices we can put on these special goggles and look in there and see the fire that this dragon is breathing. And everybody's like, no, we, we believe he's there, but he's kind of in another dimension, but we all believe that this dragon is there. Um, and so the, the, the analogy goes on to say, maybe people of faith are just delusional. They're silly. They don't have scientific reasons for believing in, 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 the, in the things of faith. But I think Carl Sagan goes on in his book, he's at least somewhat decent towards those that are believing, and he says something like, we must find other explanations for why these rational people believe in what they believe other than science. And I think um, I included on your skillet, we always include uh, sweet quotes of the day, and I quoted an atheist, I quoted a scientific scholar, because I think he says something um, that's very, that just makes sense about the definition of science and using science for what it's not intended to do. And I think he gets it right. His, his name is Stephen Jay Gould, a very big player in evolutionary thinking. But he says <clears throat> this, and it's very uh, cavalier, I think, in how he says it. But to say to all my colleagues for the umpteenth million time, colon, science simply cannot, and he includes this uh, side statement, by its legitimate methods, which would be the scientific method, adjudicate, fun word, um, science cannot by itself adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. And he says, we can neither affirm it or deny it. Uh, We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. And so I I think he gets this statement right. And I quoted him as an evolutionary thinker, as a non-Christian, because I think he at least understands that the definition of science by using the method simply cannot, you know, say whether God exists or not, whether this dragon fire breathing exists or not. So it's not silly to believe in God. It's, it's, potentially just out of the realm of science. Hopefully that makes sense. I probably could have just said it a little better thinking back, but um, let's move on. The Bible predates science. 
Um, if you think about you know, the, the, the way I just defined science as the scientific method, which um, I guess is somewhat up for debate in how we use the term science. I took a whole semester's class on the history of science, starting way back with Aristotle and, and, and going into, oh, he wasn't really doing science, but he led into what we now consider uh, high science, which is, of course, following the scientific method. And if science, by definition, is the method um, of theory, observation, etc., then and we have to talk about a guy named Francis Bacon. Mmm, bacon. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, not, has nothing to do with the meat product. Um, he, Francis Bacon lived in 1620 and kind of was the first that get, at least gets credit for using the scientific method, talking about the scientific method in the year 1600s. And so 1600s, that's well before, excuse me, that's well after the Bible was written. The Bible was written thousands potentially at least a thousand, more than a thousand years, two thousand years, um, depending on which book, before the scientific method was defined. And so the Bible predates science. And so with all this, um, I'm kind of going in this, this direction. This is my opinion. This next statement is kind of my thesis or whatever, uh, uh, the direction that I'm going. And it says this, um, therefore, because the Bible predates science, because we can't scientifically test of certain things, and knowing the definition of science, therefore, to use science to either prove or disprove the Bible is hokey. And I, I, I use the word hokey because it's not wrong to use the Bible to prove or disprove the Bible. It's not... Um, uh, dumb, I think, well, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's not like, not that it's not, not worth our time. I think it is worth our time to consider these things, but I think it's just kind of hokey. Do you know what hokey means? You've probably, it's like the, do the hokey pokey, you know, turn yourself around. This, this, uh, using clip art in this font is hokey. See the font? Do, do, do you realize what I'm, where I'm going? No, you, you look confused. Hokey is just like silly. It's just kind of like, Maybe you'll see where I'm going with this. So the first thing up there is this uh, atom, uh, or at least the representation of an atom. It says, science proves the Bible, exclamation point. So all this week, I was going to various Christian websites, and I appreciate, appreciate Christians who use science to, to prove the Bible, uh, but, but I think it it's sometimes comes across as very hokey. For instance, I found this website that went on and on and on talking about how quantum mechanics works and how the atoms work and how everything, all of matter, is built upon atoms. And so the lots of atoms make up cells or make up you know, individual... Uh, I'm struggling with the chemistry stuff. Uh, individual elements, elements make up um, chemical reactions, and everything is based upon the atom, which we can't see. And so this, this article went on to say, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1, says, Now faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the, ins- uh, the assurance of what we do not see. And so he goes on to say, Therefore, the science, we all knew that everything is made up of these atoms before, because we can't see them. And it says that in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Therefore, the Bible is proven by science because now we know that atoms exist and we can't see them. And so the Bible proves that. And I was like, wait, what? I was just like, this... 
Like, I'm all for Christians proving the Bible, but I'm, I'm not a fan of Christians acting hokey to, to prove it. I just think, like, I was like, what? It didn't say that. This is silly. Um, or this one, this one's less hokey. I think maybe some of you have probably heard this one before or thought of this one before. The, 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 the globe in the hands uh, of God, I guess. Uh, clip art, of course. Uh, Job 26.7 says that he, God, suspends the earth over nothing. Which is like, whoa, that's actually what we know today, that the earth you know, is suspended over nothing, which actually it isn't. It's kind of suspended in you know, the, the, the centric model, the gravitational pull of the sun and its own spinning around it. But anyways, um, there's really there's no matter there. So I guess this statement is true. So some Christians could look at this and say, Job 26.7, before you know, the, the world... You know, the, the common person thought the world was flat and maybe held up by two turtles or something like that in, in some other worldviews. The Bible says that the earth is held up by nothing. How awesome is that? And you're like, oh, that is pretty awesome. That is pretty cool. But if you're like showing this to an atheist and like, yeah, see, look at it, sucker, eat it. Um, they will probably continue reading. And so that's verse 7. Verse 11 goes on to say that the pillars hold up the heavens. And so he might be like, wait. Okay, you, you might get this thing right about, you know, God suspending the earth over nothing. But then it says, pillars hold up the heavens. Okay, so you take, you know, and we would say, oh, that's not literal. But it's like, well, you take the, this one literal and not that one literal. And so I think it's just kind of, you're looking into the Bible for things you could pull out. And scientifically, you know, in that mindset of just using science to do whatever you want, manipulate it and say, oh, look how awesome it is that, that God is being proven by science. And he was like, no, going back to this idea, you can't prove God by science. And so I just think it's a little hokey. The last one here is the blood um, in test tubes, uh, clip art, of course. Um, and so it's, it says, uh, I, I looked at this website that went on and on to talk about Leviticus 17.11, which, which in the Bible says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And then this article went on to say, the blood in, 19, or in 1616, William Harvey discovered that the blood circulates water and nourishment to every cell, maintaining the body's temperature and removes waste material from the body's cells. The blood also carries oxygen from the lungs throughout the body, um, confirming what the Bible revealed 3,000 years ago! Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation! And the first, uh, first I just want to say, whenever you use more than one exclamation, you're being hokey. Um, no, like, when, when did one not be enough? Anyways, um, so, so it's like, okay, he's saying that, that Leviticus 17.11, written thousands of years ago, maybe 10,000, I don't know for sure, um, a long, long time ago, it says that the life is in the blood. Does it say that the cells are carrying oxygen and removing weight? No, and so it's like these two things that are kind of connected, but like one is just saying the life is in the blood. The other one goes on to say, look how awesome scientific stuff we found about blood and the Bible revealed it. Well, it's just kind of hokey. Don't you think? Am I being crazy up here? I, I hope not. And, and because I think the, the opposite is also true. There's those people that are very skeptical that maybe have atheism as a religion. And so they would want to disprove the Bible and say, science disproves the Bible! Exclamation, 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 
to be hokey, of course. And so um, here's some clip art uh, things up there for hokiness sake. Uh, there's the number pi with a little smiley face coming out of it. How cool is that? Um, but a couple weeks ago, I talked about how the Bible represents the number pi because of this one verse. You could write it down and look at it later. First Kings 7.23 gives the number that the circumference basically is uh, pi, or it's three the three times the diameter, and, and it shouldn't be three times the diameter. It should be 3.1415926. Some of you actually know this, which just freaks me out. But um, I'm looking at it up here. So you, you all are really nerds. Um, anyways, uh, so what is pi? Pi is this number that has a long decimal point. It's the circumference of pi d is the circumference of a circle. Some of you might just be having bad flashbacks from geometry class. But the Archimedes constant, which we now call pi, wasn't invented until like 200 BC. And the passage in 1 Kings was like 900 BC. And you know that time, the numbers move bigger for older in the BC era. And so, so you're like, wait, the Bible isn't, you know, if someone's like throwing this at your face, like an atheist saying, look, the Bible's all wrong because science is correct and the Bible's wrong. And so therefore, pi isn't the number three. It's the number 3.14 with all these other digits. Therefore, the Bible's wrong. Uh, Therefore, this passage is wrong. So all the passages are wrong. You should throw the thing in the trash. Our response to that would be to say, that's kind of a hokey explanation. I think we have to understand that the Bible isn't a scientific manual. The Bible isn't, isn't trying to do science. That The Bible predates science. They, they weren't, this passage isn't about pi. This passage is about how big Solomon's uh, ba- bathing tub or whatever he was. I don't know what the heck he was doing with this like big cast iron thing. You could read about it in 1 Kings 7.23 and let me know. But it's, it's just about the things he owned and how wealthy the kingdom was. It's, he's not trying to explain the number pi. Does that make sense? And so we as Christians, I think, have to give and take this whole Bible thing and say, listen, we, we really shouldn't be using the Bible to prove or disprove the Bible. We can, but we kind of go down this road of hokiness. Um, furthermore, the next one, uh, I got three up here. Uh, the seed, talked about this last time, um, the idea of the seed is that um, Jesus says the smallest of all seeds is the mustard seed and goes on to tell a parable about uh, how, how the mustard seed grows and it's big and how, how that is like faith, small, then grows big. You could read about it in Mark 4.31. But Jesus kind of gets a scientific thing wrong by saying, and he says it pretty clearly, that the, if you read, have a very literal translation or the Greek, he says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed on all the earth. Is it? If you study biology and botany like I did, you, you know that there's seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed, like the orchid seed, that you could barely see with your own eye. You need a microscope. And so, is G- and so if someone's like throwing this in your faith, an atheist, a very skeptical person, say, look, look the Bible isn't scientifically accurate. That, therefore, it's not accurate at all. Therefore, we should just throw the whole thing in the trash. We could say, listen, this is an ancient passage. It's a parable about the truth of faith. It's not a parable about how, it's not a story meant to represent a scientific article about the smallest seed on the earth. It's like, duh. Um, I I think it should be kind of our response. I I think we should say, listen, you're being hokey to try to grab science and crush it into the Bible in these explanations. It shouldn't work like that. Furthermore, the last example, the little clip art sunset, which I'm sure you've been dazing at the whole time. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Anyone see a problem there? Well, if you're like scientifically, literally 
getting into this passage, you're like, look, this passage says the, the, how the cosmology works. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. We know that the sun is, stays stationary, at least a, for us, and we as earthlings move around the sun, revolving, and that's what causes the seasons and the sun sets and the sun rises. And so if someone very skeptical, an atheist, shows you this passage and is like, look, the Bible's garbage because it's not scientifically accurate, because it says the sun rises and the sun doesn't rise, we, I guess, rise over the earth, the sun doesn't rise over us, you would just look at them and be like, dude, you're being hokey, you're being weird, because even today, don't we refer to sun rising, sunsets? This is an ancient just way of talking and saying that God is in control of the whole thing, that, that, we, that the sun rises and sets according to us as earthlings. This isn't a scientific manual on the cosmos. This is just a statement about God and his goodness and his authority over the world. And so I think we have to actually, you know, going back to talk about you know, what we're actually saying here is to say, let's take the Bible off of its top shelf. Um, let's still revere it. Let's be, we maybe placed it up there. We live by it. But let's take it off the shelf and actually read it for what it is. Let's, let's open it up and let's um, understand that the Bible was never meant to, to be a scientific book. It's an ancient book that predates science. And I think when we, to, to say again my statement, I think when we try to prove or disprove the Bible in 2011 with science, I think we just end up being a little hokey and not true to the historicity of the text itself and what it is. So um, I, think, I think what I want to do now is, um, we only have a couple minutes I think I want to save the self-contradictions. Maybe I'll just explain what I will talk about because I won't talk about it next week because that's no far retreat. The week after that, we'll get back to uh, self-contradictions and I want to talk about hard passages in the Bible. Um, but the gist of the self-contradictions is different than I, what I talked about last time because last time we talked about self-contradictions of the Bible, but this is where a scribe has made an error. Like a scribe is writing about how many guys David's man killed with a spear. The example we talked about last week. One account says 300. The other account says 800. This is a scribal error. This is like the scribe was copying and made an error. And that accounts for that error. But uh, what I want to talk about in a couple weeks is whole passages where the story seems to be different. And you could research this um, on Google or um, wherever you want to go. You'll find a lot of um, bad sites about this stuff. You'll probably maybe find a lot of good sites about self-contradictions and why they're in the Bible. But we'll talk about that, not next week, but the week after. And so um, with that, let's, let's, it's 1030-ish. Uh, let's close in prayer. And I realize that today's lesson was just very heady. And, um, and maybe you're wondering, like, where are we going with all this? Uh, but at the end of this month, hopefully we will come back to this idea that that we believe in the Bible, we believe in Jesus, and we hold these two things to be foundationally true, and they, are, um, they line up together, they're beautiful. And so um, hopefully, hopefully today's lesson, although it just be very heady, um, explained some things and gave you some encouragement about science and the Bible. So let's pray together. God, we do praise you. We, we worship you as our Savior. God, we come before you humbly as your servants and and say that we believe in the Bible, we believe that it is true, that it is um, inerrant and infallible, and you've spoken to us through this text. God, allow us to take it off the top shelf, open it up, read it, understand it, look at it with your eyes and your understanding. God, we love you, and we praise you. And everybody said...
Amen. All right, friends, go in peace. I'll see you in two weeks if I don't see you at the retreat.